So uh, I think I'd be right in saying that none of us uh, want people to hate us. I mean, who would want to be hated? And I think I could probably venture a little bit further and say uh, that most of us uh, quite want people to like us. Uh, do you ever feel like, uh, well, do you ever find yourself replaying a conversation that you've had with someone and wondering if they've taken something that you said the wrong way? Um, there are two reasons we do this. Oftentimes, it's because we don't want to feel that we've offended the person or hurt the feelings, and um, it's, uh, it's no bad thing to consider the impact of our words. It shows that we care. It shows that we sit, we're sensitive. Uh, the other reason I think uh, we replay conversations and, to a certain extent, analyze them is that we don't want people to think badly of us. And then there's social media. Do you ever find yourself going back to something you've posted to see how many likes you've got? Um, they've actually found that uh, receiving approval on social media releases dopamine in the brain, uh, which is why it's so addictive. Finally, have you ever adapted your behavior, opinions, or beliefs to fit in with a particular social group? I think we all have to a certain extent. I mean, as Christians, we know that we're meant to be countercultural, but there are many ways that we've been shaped by our culture. That's not always a bad thing. I mean, we don't walk around the supermarket naked because we know that would be a cultural taboo. Uh, we need to be shaped to a certain extent uh, by our culture. In 1951, a scientist by the name of Solomon Ash conducted an experiment to determine the limits of our desire to conform, and it's considered a classic experiment in social psychology. He got, a, uh, he got groups of eight male students and asked them simple questions about lines on a piece of paper. And if we put that slide up, uh, you'll be able to see uh, what I'm talking about. So the question was all, always the same. Which of the three lines, A, B, or C, is closest in length to the target line? And the answer was always obvious. Hopefully you can see uh, clearly there what the answer would be. Uh, so the group of eight students would answer one after the other. Uh, they'd all be able to hear each other's answers. Um, and they went in the same order each time. But the first seven students, they were in on it. Uh, they were primed to give an incorrect answer for 12 of the 18 questions. So the eighth student would hear the same incorrect answer from seven of his peers before giving his answer. And the results? 32%, basically a third, um, conformed with the clearly incorrect majority every time. 75% conformed at least once, and only 25% never conformed. Uh, the eighth student, the test case, was interviewed after each experiment, and they're asked, why did you give uh, the wrong answer? And most said, and I'm reading, quoting from the paper here, most said that they did not really believe their conforming answers, but had gone along with the group for fear of being ridiculed or thought peculiar. Ash's experiment has its limitations, but it shows that people are very reticent to go against the flow. So why am I talking about our desire, and some would say our need to conform, to be popular, 
to be well thought of? Well, because in today's passage, we find Jesus saying something that was extremely unpopular, inflammatory, and provocative. Jesus often said things that people didn't want to hear. Uh, No one could ever accuse Jesus of behaving as if he was in a popularity contest. But when we think of a person who really doesn't care what anyone thinks of them, we tend to think of someone who is perhaps somewhat aloof, egoistic, uh, maybe um, a bit prickly even, a person who quite enjoys offending people. You may know somebody like that. And you get those memes, don't you, that summarize the kind of persona that a person wants to project. I googled and uh, uh, pulled up a few. Uh, The first one, I don't care what you think about me, I don't think about you at all. And then the next one, I don't care what you think of me because it can't be half as bad as what I think of you. And uh, another one, I'm 97% sure you don't like me, but I'm 100% sure I don't care. And most of the memes included a photo of Leonardo DiCaprio, Jack Nicholson, or uh, Robert De Niro because they're all pretty good at looking condescending. Well, Jesus is the complete opposite of that stereotype. Jesus wasn't influenced by what people thought of him, but he cared deeply about everyone he met. Jesus loved total strangers infinitely more than we can love our nearest and dearest. But at the same time, Jesus refused to be squeezed into the world's mold, and he always spoke the truth. So let's look at the first sermon of Jesus that Luke records, and in so doing, we'll see why it was so offensive, but also uh, why it's so important. Last week, we saw Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, and that was the final stage of his preparation for public ministry. Jesus spent the first 30 years of his life praying, reading the scriptures, meditating upon them. Not exclusively, we know that Jesus had a normal job. Uh, Nevertheless, Jesus was a learned, well-read, educated man who most likely spent thousands of hours diligently studying the scriptures. If Jesus spent the first 30 years of his life preparing for ministry, you can be sure that we are meant to prepare for ministry. I'm not suggesting that you lock yourself away for 30 years before you attempt to serve God. Um, We all have a ministry and a future ministry. That is to say, we all have something that God wants us to be doing now, and there is something that God wants us to be doing in the future. Now, our ministry and future ministry could look uh, more or less the same, or they could look completely different. So be forward-thinking and prayerfully discern the direction that God wants you to be moving in. You might say, one day I want to help people understand the Bible, or one day I want to lead people in worship, or lead a church, or run a small group, or pray for people after church, or, or get involved in the hospitality, whatever it is. Think about what you could do to serve God if you had the right training and the right preparation. Think about the ways that you could serve God that you feel most excited and passionate about. Pray about those things. Seek the counsel 
of godly friends and invest your time and your energy because God will use your passion. He may steer you in a slightly different direction, but he'll use your passion. It will not go to waste. And be prepared to start small. Jesus did. He didn't go straight to Jerusalem to seek the biggest crowd he could find to uh, preach in the, the temple courts. He began by walking around Galilee, preaching in the synagogues of small provincial towns. Never despise small beginnings. Think of the ministry of this church. We started very small and we're growing. I'm not talking about size. We are growing numerically and that's a good thing, but that's not all important. What counts is that our ability and our willingness to build Christ's kingdom is increasing. Our depth of faith, our willingness to serve, new people coming into the kingdom, that's where we see the increase. Anything worth doing takes time, patience, discipline, intentionality, and perseverance. So what might your ministry look like in a year's time? In a few years' time, five years' time, and what could you do to prepare for that future ministry? So eventually, Jesus returned to Nazareth, his hometown, the place where he was brought up. Um, most likely had a population of less than 500 people. Uh, Jesus would have known everyone there. They would have known him. And we know that from verse, uh, from verse 14, we know that news of Jesus had spread throughout the whole region, news of this uh, wonderful preacher, prophet, miracle worker. Imagine the excitement when Jesus returned to Nazareth. Uh, Important people didn't come from Nazareth, nor did they go to Nazareth. If you remember Nathaniel's comment, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Most people in a provincial town like Nazareth would be uh, illiterate and uneducated. And now one of their own, Jesus, this learning, learned, uh, educated rabbi who was performing miracles and causing a stir throughout all of Galilee, he'd returned. Imagine the excitement. He's back. So Jesus went to the synagogue on Saturday, on the Sabbath, as was his custom. And not surprisingly, he was invited to preach. In fact, um, visiting rabbis uh, usually were. And this scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Jesus, and he unrolled it to what we now know to be Isaiah 61. But at that point, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, uh, hadn't been divided into chapters as we, as, as we have it now. Uh, Isaiah 61 is near the end of the scroll. And when you're reading from a scroll, that's a lot of rolling. And everyone's waiting with bated breath. What's he going to read? What's he going to say? And this is what Jesus read. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is a prophecy about the day that God would send his spirit-filled, anointed Messiah and prophet to proclaim good news to his people. And this passage would have struck a chord with everyone who was gathered in that synagogue. They were all Jewish, 
Most of them were poor. There may have been people among them who were literally blind. And at that point, every Jew uh, felt oppressed by the Roman Empire. In verse 20, Luke gives us a few more details to kind of help us to understand the atmosphere. You could have heard a pin drop. It says this, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. You can imagine Jesus being very deliberate in his actions. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Uh, Being no doubt, Jesus is clearly claiming to be Israel's long-awaited Messiah, and that is exactly how his audience would have understood what he was saying. And, And so far, so good. Verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. The crowd liked what they heard. But Jesus senses the mood of the crowd, and he understands why the people are getting so excited. They're thinking, if Jesus performs such amazing miracles in Capernaum, what's he going to do here in his hometown? This is going to be amazing. The crowd are just about ready to challenge Jesus to perform some incredible miracle, really just for the sake of a show, for the sake of entertainment. It reminds us uh, last week when we, we saw that the devil was inviting Jesus effectively to do magic tricks to prove his identity as God's son. It's not hard, actually, to see uh, how Jesus' temptation in the wilderness prepares him very specifically for the ministry that we're now uh, reading about. So Jesus senses the mood in the crowd, and he immediately sets the record straight. He basically says, you think you know what the Messiah has come to do, to bless the nation of Israel and inflict punishment on her enemies. Well, you're wrong. He takes them back to the time of the prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And in so doing, he identifies himself with the prophets. You remember how Elijah announced judgment on King Ahab because he was leading the people astray into idolatry, Baal worship, all kinds of uh, detestable practices. And then Elijah had to flee from Ahab because he wanted to kill him. And God led Elijah to a widow at Zarephath who was on the verge of starvation, she and her son. That widow was a Gentile. She wasn't Jewish. And yet God blessed her with a miraculous supply of oil and flour and subsequently in the raising of her son from the dead. There were plenty of poor widows in Israel among God's people, but God sent Elijah to bless this Gentile, this non-Jewish widow. And then Elisha, the prophet who healed Naaman the Syrian. Syria was Israel's most bitter enemy. And the commander of the Syrian army went to Elisha, the Jewish prophet, to be healed of his leprosy. Elisha told him to bathe seven times in the Jordan River. Uh, Naaman was a bit offended at first, but in the end, he reluctantly agreed and he was healed. God had literally healed Israel's public enemy number one. By citing these two examples, Jesus' message is clear. The Messiah has come to bless the Gentiles, though not necessarily at the expense of the Jews, unless, of course, the Jews reject their own Messiah. 
In other words, this passage that Jesus quoted applies equally to Jews and Gentiles. And that is not what the people wanted to hear. That'll be like going to the UK in 1941 and announcing that God would bring healing and restoration to Nazi Germany. People do not want to hear that their enemies are going to be blessed. It is, of course, wonderful news because it speaks of God's love and his grace to all people. But people don't want to hear it. And when the people in that little synagogue heard Jesus speak in this way, they were really angry. How dare he suggest that God is going to, is going to bless the wrong people, our enemies? In the crowd's estimation, Jesus went from hero to zero in less than two minutes. Of course, Jesus' rejection in his hometown of Nazareth foreshadows his rejection by his own nation. On Palm Sunday, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, he was welcomed as a king. Within a very short space of time, people were baying for his blood. In both cases, Jesus' uh, his appearance in Nazareth, his entry into Jerusalem, no one could deny his credentials, his power, his authority, his preaching, his wisdom, the miracles that they were seeing. No one could deny it. The problem was he didn't conform to the popular view of a Messiah. And on that first occasion in Nazareth, the people were so incensed that they decided to kill Jesus without so much as a trial. Uh, they drove him out of town, which probably means they were punching, kicking, slapping him, uh, dragging him by his hair and his beard, spitting on him, throwing things at him. You get the idea. They took him to the brow of a hill with every intention of throwing him off a cliff. Last week, we read that the devil invited Jesus to throw himself off the highest point of the temple. Well, now we find that Jesus is in a very similar situation. The crowd are on the verge of throwing him off a cliff, not to test God, but because they've taken offense at what Jesus has said, at his message. But God does indeed save him. You remember, that was the devil's taunt, wasn't it? You know, throw yourself off, God will save you. In other words, prove you the Messiah, do a, do a trick. Well, when Jesus finds himself in this situation, God does save him. Luke simply tells us he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. We don't know exactly how it happened, but somehow God enabled him to escape. And so Jesus did receive that affirmation that God would save him, but not on the devil's terms. Remember how Jesus' sermon began. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. This good news could have been good news for everyone in that synagogue if only they'd been prepared to accept that God is infinitely more gracious than any of them uh, dared to believe. Today, Jesus still proclaims good news to the poor, not just the physically poor, but the spiritually poor, those who are far from God. And he does it through the church, through us. We are called to proclaim the same message that Jesus proclaimed. 
When Jesus announced the good news, it was an affront. It was an outrage. It was highly offensive, so much so that the mood of the crowd changed in an instant and everyone wanted him dead. Well, in one sense, nothing has changed. The gospel is still an offense. The gospel is an offense. No one wants to hear that they're sinful, that they're in the same boat as their enemies and the people they despise. No one wants to hear that salvation comes through Christ alone. No one wants to hear that they need to change their life. Nevertheless, the message we have is full of hope and it offers true life, fullness of life. And so the gospel will be received with joy by some and it will be violently opposed by others. And we still see that in many parts of the world. It's not that we go out of our way to offend people. We should always be loving, respectful, sensitive, and understanding. Especially when it comes to sharing the gospel. But share it we must. In the knowledge that some, perhaps many, will take a disliking to us. So you see, as Christians, we can't be too concerned what people think of us. We must be prepared to go against the flow and accept the consequences. That's unlikely that anyone will try and throw us off a cliff. If we lived in other parts of the world, that may be a very real possibility. Uh, however, it could mean rejection, snidely remarks, a broken relationship. It could mean that we stop getting invited out with a group, certain group of friends could lead to some sort of discrimination or bullying, could lead to all those things. It's not that we don't care what people think of us, or we don't care what people think. Like Jesus, we do care when people reject us and hate us. We do care because we love them, and we want them to have all that Jesus has to offer, which is precisely why we must risk being hated, being rejected. Jesus said to his disciples, Jesus says to us, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it, um, it's still astounding that the world would reject the only person who was ever truly good, that the world would reject God in person. But Lord, today's passage reminds us that when you said things that people didn't want to hear, they were ready to kill you. And we pray, Lord, that we will recognize that the, the gospel the truth of the gospel is not always going to be well, well received, but we pray uh, that we will not be squeezed into the world's mold, that we will not conform with the majority just because we're afraid of what people might think of us. Help us to stand up for what is true and right and good and be prepared to accept any consequences that may come as a result of that. 
We thank you, Lord, that we live in a country where we're not severely persecuted for our faith. And we pray for those who are, even now, standing up against severe, life-threatening persecution. We pray, Father, that you'll give them courage as you uh, give us courage too in our setting here. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.